0: Everything you need is already inside of you. The world would not be what it is without you. When we begin to create change within us, we begin to create change in the world around us. Your journey to becoming your best self as the whole person starts right now. Hi everyone, welcome to the Rise of Feed podcast. This is your host Natalina. Such an honor to have you here today and for you to join us. Today we're going to have a really, um, I, I would say, touching interview. We're gonna be speaking with Sherry Cormier. She's a PhD in psychologist, counselor, and a public speaker. And uh, she recently wrote a book called Sweet Sorrow, Finding Enduring Wholeness After Loss and Grief. And the great thing about this episode, it is a part one and a part two, we have, we have two episodes, is that Sherry really provides a lot of strategy and tips that we can move through that are science-based because her background is so extensive. Um, she's formal faculty at the university of tennessee west virginia she's authored a number of books and she she really can speak to how we can overcome and i wouldn't even say overcome but how we can move through and build the healing process after we go through stress loss when we lose somebody that is really dear to us so i really hope you enjoy this episode please pass it on to anyone that you believe can benefit from it rise up for you and enjoy this episode Sherry, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Rise Up For You podcast. It's such an honor to have you on the show today.
1: It's an honor to be here, and I feel so excited to talk with you, even though this can be a challenging topic. I think it's so important that we talk about grief and loss and bereavement because loss is such a universal experience for us.
0: Hmm. So tell us a little bit. We always like to ask, you know, um, about our expert, and I always like to hear in your own words. So tell us a little bit about yourself and the great work that you're currently doing.
1: All right. Well, boy, this is, I think this is always the toughest question because we've sort of been conditioned not to speak a lot about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, you know, I wrote a book that came out just this fall called Sweet Sorrow, And I've written, this is a self-help book for the general public. Now, I've written textbooks in the psychology field all my life. I'm a psychologist, and I'm a certified bereavement trauma specialist. But in the last decade, I've experienced a lot of personal losses. My father and husband died um, a decade ago within three months of one another. And my father was older, but my husband who was you know healthy as a horse, just kind of one day got diagnosed with stage four terminal cancer, and he was gone in six months. And then several years after that, my, my mom died, and then my rescue dog died, and then about two years ago, my only sibling and sister died. And you know, what I discovered was, I discovered that going through loss yourself is very different um, than working with people. I mean, I've worked with a lot of people. I think when you're when it's happening to someone else, you're more obje- you can be more objective. And when it's happening to you, you know, it's very humbling. It Was very humbling for me because I had so many dark days. I had so many days where you know your show's called Rise Up. Well, I had many days that were the opposite of rise up. I guess that would be rise down or fall down. Mm. Um, But I'm pleased to say that now, a decade later, I'm in a completely different place, a very new place than I was in 10 years ago. And I really waited to write Sweet Sorrow because so many of these books are written in the immediate aftermath of a huge loss and i really wanted to show the oscillations of grief and bereavement over time Uh, one of the things that i've learned and i think we've all learned in the bereavement field you know we used to talk with people about oh when you're bereaved or when you're grief-stricken you go through these stages and we really don't believe that anymore we 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 find that grief is not a linear process that healing from loss is more cyclical and for example you know if you've had losses that occur at a particular time of the year that that may be a trigger time for you and even though you're sort of moving along and moving ahead with your healing You know, you can take a step back when there's a trigger event. The holidays are coming up. We just experienced Thanksgiving and then we have Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and Christmas. And holidays are big trigger events for people, too, because, you know, if we've lost people or even if it's been another kind of loss, if we lost a house in a hurricane or a wildfire or if we, you know, lost a job, holidays can trigger all of those memories about what we used to have that is no longer. And that I think is where the sorrow comes in. That's where the sadness comes in.
0: Mm. So Sherry, you know, did you step into this industry because of all of the loss? Did you decide to kind of pivot and then write the book? Um, or, you know, through your work, I know, I know you do a lot of academic work, you're a psychologist through your work. Did you find, um, that you were already going in that direction or was this kind of like the spawning of it?
1: This was a spawning, this has been a spawning event in my work up until the last decade. I, well, I've always worked a lot with stress, Mm -hmm. stress management, and this fits in very nicely because, you know, so many of us are caregivers for people with serious illness or cancer, people, older people with neurodegenerative disease. Caregiving can be filled with immense stress. So that was a nice fit. I've always done, uh, I've sort of been a psychologist that always has focused on Lifestyle factors associated with wellness, mm. like meditation and mindfulness and exercise and yoga and things like that. That's also a very nice fit because all of the things that I've always recommended with clients that they do for their general well being or for anxiety or for depression, also are very, very useful tools for building resilience. Mm. and for coping with, with grief and bereavement.
0: Mm. So I know that, you know, um, you just mentioned, we talked about a little bit before the, um, we started recording about, you know, it's the holidays now and, um, you know, typically that's where we feel at the most. We miss them. We wish that what we had w- was still there. Um, and, you, you know, you talk a lot and you, you discuss about why we should never tell a grieving person. I, I know how you feel, especially in these times when some people uh, may not be able to relate. I'd love to just talk a little bit about more about that and, you know, the verbiage that we can use around somebody who's grieving, um, even if it's 10 years from now or three years from now.
1: Yes. And, you know, I I love that you asked about this because I think this is hard for us. And, And I will admit, even for myself, before I went through all of these personal losses, I sometimes felt at a loss to really know what to say to somebody. I think many of us feel very awkward around people who are grieving. I think, by and large, the United States, particularly compared to some other cultural groups and countries around the world, the United States tends to be grief phobic. Hmm. We don't really like to talk about death and dying and grief and loss. And we many of us don't want to be around. Sick people or people that we think are dying. And I've heard this from so many people that as soon as you get diagnosed with you know a terminal illness or a serious illness, you know, you it's a litmus test. You really find out who your friends are because so many people run away. I think if we just acknowledge our own discomfort and sometimes the most helpful thing to say to someone is I know you're going through a really tough time now and I'd really like to be there for you, Mm. period. And then even asking the person very directly, if there are things we can do or ways we can help rather than assuming, you know, when someone, when we've lost a person, We have these, in the United States in particular, we have these sort of things that we turn to. We send a sympathy card, we send flowers, we take a casserole. Mm. I don't, those are always the best things to do, even though they're, they're standard things to do, because flowers die and we have to throw them away. We can be inundated with flowers, we can be inundated with food and have to trash that. So I like to say to someone, what's the most helpful thing that I could do? How can I be of, of help? And, you know, it might be, uh, could you run an errand for me? Yeah. Could, you, could you go do this for me? Could you um, take out, uh, you know, pick somebody up at the airport if there's a people, family coming in? Uh, so I think not making assumptions about, well, we automatically know what's the best thing to say. And I think absolutely to avoid cliches, like um, there's got to be a reason for this, or, you know, God has a plan. Those, we should always want to avoid those cliches because those can sound really offensive to people. Yeah. In the middle of loss, you know, those things just don't resonate.
0: It's, it's interesting that you said that i i mean as someone who's gone through loss um i i agree with that you know sometimes in that moment you don't want to hear you know it's meant to be you know they're in a better place sometimes it's, you're just not ready to hear that
1: no, I, no. <laughs> I don't know if we're ever ready to hear that because that's true that, you know potentially that could be true but we're in the middle of heartache. We're missing the person or we're missing, whatever it is, we're lost. Mm. We've lost, you know, our house or our job or whatever. We're in the middle of heartache. And so having someone give us this sort of false reassurance about, well, you'll be better off, you'll get a better job, you'll get a better house, you know, your person's in a better place. Those platitudes really... Don't reach us, and I don't even think they teach us. <laughs> mm, yeah, they don't reach teach us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, I'd love to talk a little bit more. Um, I know one thing that you mentioned is that people like to be near water, um, and then how yeah. to well, one thing that I really want to tap into is the post traumatic stress and how we can use yeah. that um, to grow. Um, and to hopefully, yes, you really
1: know, I want to talk about that. Too yeah. with you Because I think that fits so well with your show in particular with the rise up. Mm-hmm, theme. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful fit for, for your listeners.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yes, please. I would love for you to jump in and let's start with, um, yeah, let's go ahead and start with the water and, um, you know, and why, because that works for me too, but I can never really verbalize why. I just know that I like to be, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> okay,
1: now I'll give you the explanation. Okay. <laughs> well, there's a person by the name who's a very esteemed person by the name of Wallace Nichols, Dr. P. Dr. Meaning PhD, who okay. wrote a book called Blue Mind. Blue mm. mine and he talks about the science behind why being near the water can help you heal from not just from loss but from stress uh, from deep disappointment and it's basically because in being in proximity to the water decreases uh, levels of stress hormones in our body okay? And it increases, uh, so things like cortisol, which if that gets to a very high level can be damaging to our cells. Mm. So it decreases cortisol. It increases what we call our feel-good hormones like dopamine and serotonin, which are our pleasure hormones, Uh, oxytocin. So it increases all of those feel-good hormones. Mm -hmm. So basically, when we're around the water, we usually feel... More joy filled, more joyful, more full of joy, we feel happier. Um, maybe metaphysically, if you think about it, water is associated with sort of flow, and we need to be able to process grief to flow through us. Right. So maybe there's part of this metaphysical aspect that the water sort of gives us an encouragement to. Process the emotion of grief. Um, someone also mentioned, you know, when we think about it, our bodies are composed of ninety percent water, mm. and most of us go around chronically in a state of dehydration. So maybe there's something about being near the water where we we're absorbing all of those molecules, and somehow that's feeding us at an embodied level as well. And, and those are all, maybe all the mechanisms by which our stress hormones decrease and our pleasure hormones increase.
0: Mm. See, now that makes sense, you know, because as mentioned, I, I, for me personally, and I can only speak about myself is when I'm near the water, it is a very calming and, and healing feeling, especially when I'm feeling, Um, you know, down, a little bit stressed or, you know, reminiscing, you know, in the past with my parents and losing them as though that makes, that makes perfect sense. How do you make the shift you know, in regards to uh, post-traumatic stress, which is something that many people deal with on a multitude of levels, you know, not only dealing with loss, but just other traumatic situations. How do we trans? And and sometimes it lasts for years and a lifetime, you know, and it's something that is hard to move through for some people. How or what tips or suggestions do you have to make that shift of taking that post-traumatic stress into growth?
1: Right. Well, the first thing that I would say is timing is everything. And you just alluded to that because mm-hmm. you said, you know, um, some people stay stuck in post-traumatic distress or stress for a very long time, maybe forever. So we, we don't find, we can't push people into growth too early whether it's a trauma, a traumatic event, or a traumatic loss, people need time to establish a sense of equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, once, some, once a traumatic event or a traumatic a loss happens to you, you're, you know, you sort of go into this, you're in shock, you're stunned, you're numb, often. For a period of time. And so we need to kind of get balanced. We need to get regrounded. We need to find our footing. I guess it's the best way to say it. Mm-hmm. And then once we've done that, we can think about what does it take um, to shift from distress into growth right? and how do we do that? And, you know, there's actually a lot of, in the last 20 years, there's been a lot of research that's been conducted on post-traumatic growth with survivors from traumatic loss and survivors of other traumatic events, including veterans who come back from deployment, multiple deployments and prisoners of wars with PTSD. And we find that one of the things that is really helpful in making that shift is looking for meaning. because you know what what people are telling us is that, well, we wouldn't have asked for this experience. We wouldn't have asked to be uh, a, a prisoner of war. We wouldn't have asked to have lost a spouse, We wouldn't have, asked to have had a severe injury that left us paralyzed. But in fact, over time, the experience has opened us up. And it particularly, I think with loss, traumatic loss, but this can be true with trauma in general. The reason that I think it it helps us grow is the trauma the traumatic event is really an event, a time for expansion. And it's in that expansion that we find the most potential for growth. Mm. So yeah, and so usually what's happened to us, it of course is upsetting, you know, the events upsetting, the losses upsetting. Um, it's something, you know, that violates our assumptions. And the growth doesn't really come from the event. You know, the growth doesn't come from being the POW or having a severe uh, paralytic injury or losing a loved one. The growth comes from the meaning that we make, that we gather, that we process, that we conclude from the event rather than the event itself. And one of the things that we find is that there's, there's about five things that people consistently report, five areas that, that people, including myself, consistently report that we really notice growth in. And one is we really realize the fragility of life, but we develop this enhanced appreciation for life we realize
0: how precious it is. What does that look like? I know that's a hard question, but when you say change the meaning, can you just give us maybe a, a little example of, of how we do that or what that looks like for somebody? Oh
1: yes, how to change the meaning.
0: Yeah, like what, like what does that look right. like? Um, like when you say that and I, I hear what you're saying and I understand it, but I'm not sure I would know how to implement it. Right,
1: okay. So I think the the easiest way that might be for people to do this, this certainly was how I did this is to start journaling mm-hmm. and, and ask yourself questions or just start making notes on a notepad about what has the event or the loss taught you mm. If the loss is a lesson or the event is a lesson, what would the teaching be? What would the lesson be? Mm. If had And maybe even write about it as a story. If you had to give the event a title or the loss a title, what would the title be? If you, and you are the character in this story, and this event has happened to you, write about yourself almost in the third person as as the character in this story of trauma or loss. What is happening to you, and what is happening to you over time? What was your character like before the event, during the event, and after the event?
0: Hmm, Mm.
1: These are some of the kinds of more experiential activities that I do with with people that I work with, and often in workshops that I do when we when we we try to explore the meaning of events, the meaning of difficult events, the meaning of, of disappointing events.
0: And I would say that it's definitely um, it's definitely a deep dive. You know, I think that you would have to be ready yeah. to 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 go there. Um. Yes. And
1: that's why, that's why the timing is so important. And I said, you know, I don't think we see much, much shift in the way of growth. Certainly not in year one, maybe Mm. not two, maybe not even three following a a difficult traumatic event because it takes a while to rebalance. Your whole life has been turned upside down. Your idea, has completely been shifted. Hmm. So it's a while to just find your footing and rebalance and, you know, use tools just to sort of get your equanimity back. I think in the early stages of handling disappointments or trauma, some of those tools I mentioned earlier are really good about just becoming a meditator and becoming mindful and, and, and practicing any kind of spiritual practice that you can hang on to is great. Um, play is good because you know these are heavy emotions and so we have to find time for play to balance everything out. Looking for inspiration, um, I, I love curiosity because I think curiosity and learning are antidotes for sorrow and despair. Uh, I think gratitude is huge. I think, even though it's hard to be grateful when we've gone through a very tough time, you know, we still need to remember that we're here. I, I remember a man that I talked with not too long ago who, whose wife has been in a nursing home, and these these are younger people, but she had a has had a very hard neurodegenerative disease and just needed a lot of 24-hour care. And, you know, we talked about how his life wasn't over. His life isn't over. And so he's deeply regretful about losing his life with her because they've been cherished companions since they were 20 years old. Now they're 60. But his life is still ongoing. And so being grateful for that and how does he put one foot in front of the other and just maybe even recognizing that you're going to be stronger looking at what your own strengths are, what your own intensity of how strong you feel looking at spirituality in your life relationships, you know one of the ways that we grow is we often find that while we lose some friends because they feel uncomfortable around us we also may make new connections that may become more meaningful because we may find a tribe who better understands our, our new experiences. And that can be a huge gift.
0: Absolutely. Sherry, it's been really such an honor to have you on the show. I would love to do a part two with you because we still have so much to talk about. I want to talk about the five seeds of resilience that you talk about Um, and really talk about how we can start moving from the grief into healing, like how we can tell when that's happening. But I'd love to jump into the power section of the interview and ask you what's one book that you've read that's had a massive impact on your life that you would share with us?
1: Well, yes. And that's a very hard question (laughs) for me because I'm a voracious reader and I love about... 200 books, the one that came to my mind, which was an old book and an Oprah book and has been since reissued as an anniversary edition is Gary Zukav seat of the soul. Mm. And that, that just has re- resonated with me when it first came out. I think it's still so relevant, if not more relevant to what's happening in our world today on a global level. And I, I, just, I get very excited about that book.
0: Wonderful. And what's one value that you've constantly stuck by throughout your journey? That's a non-negotiable
1: compassion and kindness.
0: And here at the, here at the rise up for you podcast, we always like to ask if you can leave the world with one final message, we call it our golden nugget. What would your golden nugget be?
1: Well, my golden nugget is really related to my value of compassion and kindness, and that is judgment never changes anyone. Mm,
0: That's so true. That's a beautiful golden nugget. Thank you for sharing that. And lastly, here on the Rise Up For You podcast, I always like to ask that question. What comes to mind when you hear that phrase, rise up for you?
1: Well, what comes to my mind is Resilience, because the word resilience means really upward movement, rise up, rebound. And I think about all of these ways that we can rise up, we can create upward movement, we can rebound from very difficult, challenging, disappointing events in our lives. Mm. And I thank you so much for doing these wonderful podcasts that are so inspirational.
0: Sherry, thank you so much. Again, we will have you back. We're definitely going to have to do a part two, um, but tell us how we can connect with you and support you in the meantime.
1: Great. Thank you so much. Well, I have a Facebook page, Sherry Cormier, S-H-E-R-R-Y-C-O-R-M-I-E-R at Sweet Sorrow Book. I'm on Twitter at Sweet Sorrow Book. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. I uh, have a website, sherrycormierauthor.com and Soul is available on all your online booksellers like Amazon, Barnes and, & and Noble and Books A Million.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to have you on the show and I look forward to the next episode where we'll do part two.
1: I'd love to come back.
0: Thank you for joining us today on the Rise Up For You podcast series. We're here to serve you and inspire you to become your best self so that you can live a life that you are proud of. If you haven't already head over to our website, riseupforyou.com and explore through all that we have to offer. Don't forget to subscribe while you're there for exclusive materials sent to you weekly, and also subscribe to this podcast. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and any other major podcast channel. Join us for our next episode, but until we meet again, rise up for you, be better today than yesterday, and prepare for a greater you tomorrow.